From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. As there is an escalation in violence in the current conflict in Ukraine, we present excerpts from Ukraine on Fire, the Oliver Stone-produced movie about the 2014 U.S.-backed coup in Ukraine. Here in Kiev in recent days, the Maidan, or Independence Square, has turned into a full-scale war zone. We've invested over $5 billion to assist Ukraine in these and other goals. NATO has expanded into 13 countries, up to the borders of Russia. 13 countries. The focus has to be on not allowing this crisis to turn into hot war between Ukraine and Russia. And Brian Becker, activist and host of the Socialist Program podcast, talks about the new book, Socialist Reconstruction, A Better Future for the United States. The CEO of all of these capitalist corporations, their job is to maximize profit. Then you're going to make the decisions to keep your job, which is to maximize profit. But that's why we're reaching this tipping point with environmental catastrophe. All that and much more coming up on the show. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital for October 14th, 2022. I'm Esther Ivarum. Among the new revelations from Thursday's January 6th committee hearing were many text messages from Secret Service agents indicating that agents knew as early as December 2020 that members of the Proud Boys were planning to bring guns and weapons to Washington, D.C. on January 6th, 2021 that agents saw armed Trump supporters on the streets of Washington early in the morning of January 6th, but no warnings were provided to either U.S. Capitol Police or to those tasked with protecting Vice President Mike Pence. This is committee member Representative Adam Schiff. As the documents we received make clear, the Secret Service was aware of weapons possessed by those gathered at rallies in D.C. as early as the evening before. Take this document, for instance, which details multiple arrests in the crowds demonstrating on January 5th. Those arrests were for weapons offenses, handguns, high-capacity feeding devices, ammunition. What the Secret Service saw on the 6th was entirely consistent with the violent rhetoric circulating in the days before the joint session on pro-Trump websites at times amplified by the president's own advisors. The committee voted to subpoena Trump, though legal experts say that he is unlikely to testify. Also on Thursday, the Supreme Court declined to hear Trump's case involving classified documents he removed from the White House. Also this week, the Supreme Court heard the case of Rodney Reed on death row in Texas for a murder that he, family members, advocates, and investigators say he did not commit. While Reed's supporters held a vigil outside the court on Tuesday, attorneys with the Innocence Project argued his case against Texas, which claims that it is too late for DNA testing that could prove Reed's innocence. Protesters from Code Pink shut down D.C., Death for Climate, and other groups disrupted the annual meetings here of the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, calling out the institutions for funding fossil fuel projects and for creating debt traps that continue to exploit poor, formerly colonized countries of the global south. Cancel the debt. Cancel the debt. 
Code Pink disrupted inside one meeting hall on Wednesday and was ejected by security after dropping a banner and chanting, cancel all debt and reparations now. This is Nancy Macias of Code Pink. The IMF and World Bank are predatory lenders, legal loan sharks, loaning to countries facing war, economic crisis due to imperialism, colonization, foreign coups at the hands of the global north. We demand the IMF and World Bank decolonize their practice for the people, for the planet, and for peace. More information about the actions is online at fourplanet4people.earth. And finally, in culture and media, Indigenous Peoples Day was celebrated on the National Mall this week. Also, journalist Chris Hedges, former Green Party presidential candidate Jill Stein, and Pacifica Radio's Garland Nixon and yours truly were among the speakers rallying for imprisoned WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange on Saturday, October 8th, in front of the Department of Justice in Northwest D.C. A full live stream of the D.C. rally, as well as a live stream of the London rally that same day that drew thousands in support of Assange, is at consortiumnews.com. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us. Ukraine. It's an ancient and proud land with a rich history filled with much beauty, heroism, and sacrifice. Ukraine is a borderland, a place where East meets West. This is the flag of Ukraine. The blue represents the sky. The gold, it's seemingly endless fields of wheat. Ukraine is a prize many have sought, and much blood has spilled in the quest to possess it. Ukraine has been the pathway for Western powers as they attempted to conquer the East. In World War I, and World War II. And every time, the Ukrainian people ended up paying the highest price for these grand games of power. History doesn't repeat, but it surely rhymes, said Mark Twain. 
If one looks closely at the history of Ukraine, one will notice many rhymes. Being surrounded by stronger powers, Ukraine has needed a lot of cunning to survive, and the art they truly mastered with time is the art of changing sides. In the middle of the 17th century, Ukrainian leader Bogdan Hmelnitsky broke a truce agreement made with Poland, siding with more powerful Russia. Just over 50 years later, as the Russian-Swedish war was raging, another Ukrainian leader, Ivan Mazepa, broke the union with Russia when he switched sides, joining forces with the Swedish invaders. Many times, Ukrainian history was written by third parties. Seeking to keep the gains of a revolution at any cost, Russia agreed to the humiliating conditions of the Brest-Litovsk Treaty of 1918, which turned Ukraine into a German protectorate. Another historical document that changed the fate of Ukraine was the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact of 1939, one of many such agreements being signed between European countries and rising Germany. Attempting to protect his nation from the approaching Nazi threat, Joseph Stalin negotiated a treaty of non-aggression with Adolf Hitler. While promising each other peace, the Soviet and German foreign ministers Molotov and Ribbentrop realigned the map of Eastern Europe, splitting it into German and Soviet spheres of influence. No sooner had the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact been signed than Poland was split. And in September of 1939, Eastern Poland awoke to be Western Ukraine and a part of the family of Soviet republics and the USSR. But even this bold dividing of lands and nations only delayed the inevitable. Germany broke its promise to the USSR. On June 22, 1941, Germany invaded the USSR, launching Barbarossa the largest military operation in world history. Barbarossa was aiming for St. Petersburg, Moscow, and Kiev, Ukraine, three destinations of major significance. Ukraine, with its rich lands and resources, was an important industrial and economic source for the USSR. To cut it off from the Soviet Union would strike a big blow indeed. For most of the Soviet Union, the Second World War was about fighting the invaders of their land. But it wasn't quite so simple for Ukraine. The truth is, Ukraine has never been a united country. When World War II broke out, a large part of Western Ukraine's population welcomed the German soldiers as liberators from the recently forced upon them Soviet rule and openly collaborated with the Germans. The real scale of collaboration was not announced for many years after the war, but we now know that whole divisions and battalions were formed by Ukrainian collaborators, such as SS Galitsyan, Noktigal, and Roland battalions. Just in the beginning of the war, more than 80,000 people from Galicina region voluntarily enrolled into Division SS Galician in a month and a half, notorious for their extreme cruelty towards the Polish, Jewish, and Russian people on the territory of Ukraine. 
Members of these military groups came mostly from the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, the OUN, founded in 1929. This organization had an ultimate goal of creating an ethnically pure, independent Ukraine, and considered terror an acceptable tool for achieving their ends. Their official flag was black and red, land and blood. It will remain in Ukraine's history long after the OUN will cease to exist. In early 1940, the most radical nationalistic part of the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists got its own leader, Stepan Bandera. Severely anti-Semitic and anti-communist, he proclaimed an independent Ukraine in 1941. His German allies frowned upon such an act of self-will, and it landed him in prison for nearly all the Second World War. Not participating in the events physically, Bandera still managed to successfully spread his ideology. Many independent historians estimate that the OUN militia exterminated from 150 to 200,000 Jews on Ukrainian territory occupied by the Germans by the end of 1941. The most notorious and outrageous massacre took place September 29th and 30th, 1941 in Babiar, Kiev. All kikes of the city of Kiev and its vicinity must appear on Monday, September 29th by 8 o'clock in the morning. Bring documents, money and valuables, and also warm clothing, linen, etc. Any kikes who do not follow this order and are found elsewhere will be shot. 33,771 Jews were killed in this two-day operation of the Nazis and Ukrainian militia. Another outrageous massacre was carried out by the Ukrainian insurgent army and the Bandera faction of the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists in German-occupied Polish Volhynia and Eastern Galicia between 1943 and 1944. This genocide of Poles was led by Mykola Lebed, 35,000 to 60,000 people in Volhynia and 25 to 40,000 in Eastern Galicia fell victim to this massive ethnic cleansing operation. Sensing the inevitable loss of the German troops, the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists gave up on their former ally and began fighting equally against the Germans and the Soviet forces. In January 1943, USSR troops started pushing the Nazis back, liberating one part of Ukraine after another. Western Ukraine was the last Ukrainian region held by the Germans, finally being liberated in October of 1944. Bandera's bands continued to wage their guerrilla war against the Soviet regime, carrying out bloody raids on Ukrainian villages and towns, and leaving behind chaos and casualties. This war went on until the middle of the 1950s, when the last collaborators were either detained or fled the country. On May 7, 1945, Germany unconditionally surrendered to the Allies. Ukraine remained a part of the Soviet Union. The peace after the Second World War was short-lived. The United States and the Soviet Union, nations who allied together along with England to defeat the Nazis, 
tragically became foes as the Cold War began. You just heard the start of Ukraine on Fire, this really fascinating movie that gives such an important history about Ukraine, this country that many Americans probably cannot locate on the map, but the United States has sent tens of billions of dollars to arm Ukraine in this proxy war against Russia. And the Secretary of Defense, a former lobbyist for the major weapons contractor Raytheon, said that the goal of this war is to weaken Russia. So I'm going to get back to Ukraine on fire. The era of political and military tension between the U.S. and the USSR lasted for nearly 45 years, keeping humanity under the constant threat of nuclear war. In this battle, the United States never lost sight of Ukraine's importance. U.S. intelligence kept a close eye on Ukrainian nationalists' organizations as a possible source of counterintelligence against the Soviet Union. CIA documents that just recently have been declassified show strong ties between U.S. intelligence and Ukrainian nationalists since 1946. From the CIA agency report, it is clear that they were not mistaken about the nature of Ukrainian nationalist organizations or their leader, Stepan Bandera himself. According to an OSS report of September 1945, Bandera had earned a fierce reputation for conducting a reign of terror during World War II. After the Second World War, Bandera and other Ukrainian Nazi leaders fled to Europe where the CIA helped them hide. The CIA later informed the Immigration and Naturalization Service that it had concealed Stefan Bandera and other Ukrainians from the Soviets. The operations involving Ukrainians continued for many years. The Nuremberg trials of 1945 and 1946 brought the political, economic, and military leaders of fascist Germany to justice and revealed to the world the monstrous face of Nazism and the crimes they committed. But the Ukrainian Nazis were spared the same fate, and some were even granted indulgences by the CIA. By 1954, the agency excused the illegal activities of the OUN security branch in the name of Cold War necessity. In 1949, Mykola Lebed, the man responsible for the massacres in Volhynia, was moved to the United States, where he died in 1989 without ever being investigated or pursued as a war criminal. The CIA moved to protect Ukrainian nationalist leader Mykola Lebed from criminal investigation by the Immigration and Naturalization Service in 1952. Perhaps Bandera lost his use to the U.S., or maybe KGB agents outsmarted the CIA. But in 1959, Stepan Bandera, the leader of the Ukrainian nationalists, was killed in Munich, where he was hiding under the name of Stefan Popol. It would be fair to say that Bandera became a major symbol of Ukrainian nationalism by sheer chance, for he was neither its only leader nor its most powerful one. Dmitro Dontsov was the father of the far-right totalitarian doctrine in Ukraine. Andriy Melnik was the leader of another faction of the OUN. 
Roman Shuhevich was a general of the Ukrainian insurgent army, and others contributed greatly to the movement. Bandera's dangerous ideology, suppressed by the communist authorities, but supported by external forces, never really died. The seeds of Ukrainian nationalism were passed from generation to generation. Unfortunately, it was just a matter of time before they would once again blossom. In 1954, Ukraine's territory was expanded even more when Nikita Khrushchev, the leader of the USSR and a Ukrainian himself, generously gave the Crimean region to Ukraine. Historians would argue about the legitimacy of this transfer for many years to come, and 60 years after Khrushchev's gift, dramatic new events would take place in Crimea. The eyes of the world are on Ukraine as the crisis in Crimea continues. Dozens of heavily armed men seized government buildings in Crimea. Should Ukraine just shrug its shoulders and say, okay, Crimea, it's lost? And the old arguments would heat up once again. The Cold War would heat up and cool down by turns, while both rivals were obsessively building up military capacity. The turning point took place when the new era, Perestroika, came to the USSR with its new leader, Mikhail Gorbachev, in the middle of the 1980s. Perestroika meant restructuring towards liberalization and democratization. It certainly had a positive impact on the international situation. Well, astonishing news from East Germany, where the East German authorities have said, in essence, that the Berlin Wall doesn't mean anything anymore. But inside the USSR, the weakening of Kremlin control had different consequences. In Ukraine, a nationalistic political organization, Narodny Ruch, or People's Movement, emerged in 1989 due to this new openness. They advocated for independence of Ukraine from the USSR and became an incubator for leaders of Ukrainian neo-Nazism. In 1991, one of them, Oleg Tyagnibok, founded Svoboda, an openly radical nationalist party preaching the good old principles of Bandera. Purge Ukraine from the Jews and Russians, Ukraine for Ukrainians, and so on. His statements got him fifth place in the Simon Wiesenthal Center Top 10 Anti-Semitic World Leader Rankings of 2012. But also, sadly, attracted numerous followers. Dmitry Yarosh founded another extreme right organization, Trizu, or Trident, in 1994. In April 2013, Yarosh became an assistant to a member of parliament from the opposition party Udar. Later that same year, he would become the leader of the most radical Ukrainian Nazi group, the Right Sector. Andriy Parubi would soon appear leading a whole army of ultra-nationalist warriors. And the torch marches would once again light up the streets of Ukrainian cities. Now, that was a little bit more from Ukraine on Fire about the rise of the neo-Nazi groups in Ukraine, which would go on to supply the muscle for the U.S.-backed coup in that country in 2014. I know you've heard us talk about 
the neo-Nazi groups in Ukraine. And, and very often, if you listen to corporate media, they don't really mention that or they try to gloss over the fact that there was even like a TV interview with one of these leaders of one of these groups. And they had to kind of blur out in the background that there was this like picture of either Stepan Bandera or some type of Nazi symbol. And typically when coverages of, of Ukraine these days, there's something has to be blurred out in the background in order so that people don't either see a Nazi symbol or some type of monument uh, praising uh, Bandera. Here at On the Ground, we're so grateful to be able to offer this important material that has been, you know, marginalized and and some outlets have tried to ban it. The next portion of the film that I will play jumps forward to a bit of how these neo-Nazi groups played a role in that U.S. back coup in 2014. And so let's get to it so, so we can all squeeze in all this good information today. News media reported that the riot police cruelly attacked the students peacefully sleeping in their tents. But scenes from the event seem to tell a different story. It appears that the protesters were waiting for the police. Additionally, there were dozens of journalists and cameramen from all the new public TV news outlets prepared to cover the events. And most ominously, a group of well-trained young men arrived to Maidan almost simultaneously with the riot police. They infiltrated the crowd and began provocations with insults, stones, and torches. The right sector in Ukraine represents a part of the Ukrainian population that has often favored fairly extreme right-wing positions. They had militias that came especially during the Maiden protests. There were groups that were being shipped into Kiev where they would provide the muscle, in effect, for the demonstrations. So the demonstrations went from being relatively peaceful political protests to being increasingly violent. In early February of 2014, as the Maiden crisis was getting more violent, there was a phone call that was intercepted. It was a call between the Assistant Secretary of State for European Affairs, Victoria Nuland, and the U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, Jeffrey Pyatt. Questions of credibility are being raised after a private chat between two top U.S. diplomats was leaked online. I think Yats is the guy who's got the economic experience, the governing experience. He's, he's the guy, you know, what he needs is Cleach and Tony Book on the outside. I, I, I just think Cleach going in, he's going to be at that level working for Yatsenyuk. It's just not going to work. Yeah, no, it, I, think that's, you know? I think that's right. Okay. Good. Well, do you want us to try to set up a call with him? Here's the next step. Sullivan's come back to me, uh, VFR, saying you need Biden. And I said probably tomorrow for an attaboy and to get the deets to stick. So okay. Biden's willing. So you had this remarkable phone call where you have these two senior officials of the U.S. government apparently talking about a coup or how they were planning to restructure the government of Ukraine. The EU. No, exactly. I'm not saying the whole U.S. government feels that way. The there is, there is division on this, but the neoconservative element wants very much to change the strategic dynamic in Eastern Europe. The neocons are very smart people, and they've been at this for a long time. They came in around the issue of propaganda. They studied how to create hot buttons for the American people. They had this experience when they were getting the American people to get excited about Central America back in the 1980s. Sandinista regular army. The ground force is being equipped now with Russian artillery. 
And they've been applying those same strategies ever since. They remain very dedicated to achieving their goals. They still want to get rid of certain governments. They wanted regime change in Syria, for instance, regime change in Iran. They're very skilled at this, and they have a lot of allies now inside the news media, inside the government, and that means that they can do a lot to control the narrative of any story. I think in America these days, we have somehow told ourselves that there are a lot of ways of dealing with these problems other than hard power. Vladimir Putin cares about hard power. The neoconservatives can now demonize a leader of a country. That sells with the American people. So you don't just sort of argue a policy. You attack the leader. So the neoconservatives became very skilled at picking out leaders, finding their ugly traits, and then highlighting them. Yanukovych, he might say was a rather clunky political leader, but you make him into a devil. He's, he's totally corrupt and he's evil and he wants to kill people in the Maidan, these wonderful white-hatted demonstrators. So you've got a black hat versus white hat. And, that, and they, you keep repeating that basic scenario. And it works with the American people. You've got to realize what Vladimir Putin is. He's an old KGB colonel that wants to restore the Russian empire. You make them into demons, and the American people find that the way they can understand the world. Once that happens, it's very difficult for journalists or anyone else to say, you know, hold it, that guy, he's got more of a gray hat than a white hat or a black hat. Uh, and if you say that, you suddenly are you're a Yanukovych apologist or you're a Putin apologist, and, and then the attacks come on to the person saying it, the journalist, the academic, or whoever. And that was the late award-winning journalist Robert Perry, founder of ConsortiumNews.com, speaking on the documentary Ukraine on Fire. And to quickly connect what happened in 2014 to the situation today, after the violent coup in 2014, the largely ethnic Russian population in eastern Ukraine did not accept the coup government which was very far right, very anti-Russian, banning their language, banning many of their customs. And since then, their newspapers, their leaders, and the government in Kiev started a a war against the eastern Ukraine, and uh, which the people in the east won, actually. And there there were two agreements called the Minsk Accords, uh, which were supposed to grant uh, autonomy to those regions. But uh, after they were agreed to, they weren't followed by Kiev and the war continued. And since then, 14,000 people have been killed in eastern Ukraine. And that is why we say the war did not begin on February 24th, 2022, that it began after the 2014 violent overthrow of the government that was depicted in this movie, Ukraine on Fire. This is On the Ground, on thegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And now I'm joined by friend of the show and show contributor Brian Becker, national coordinator at the Answer Coalition. Welcome back to the show, Brian. Esther, thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much. 
Well, I want to talk to you. Very excited to talk to you about a new book project that you've been working on. And the book is titled Socialist Reconstruction, A Better Future for the United States. And, you know, just scouring the news for today's show, I saw that in this country, Republicans are challenging in court the small student debt relief that just enacted by the Biden administration, that there are places called maternal care deserts, just like food deserts, where there aren't enough health care facilities for women to give birth and then for the babies and mothers to be cared for. And these maternal care deserts are in areas where abortion bans have been put into place. So you can't get an abortion. If you carry a child to term, you can't have a place to care for yourself or the baby. And we know there's homelessness, hunger. We know that voting rights are under attack. So I'm very interested in this book you contributed to, uh, Socialist Reconstruction, A Better Future for the United States, published by Liberation Media. And in the beginning of the book, it says uh, how in the past you and other contributors for the book may have considered it an exercise in utopian dreaming to sketch out a blueprint for socialism in the United States, but that it has become politically necessary to do so. So I want to start by asking you why. Indeed. You know, we started working, Esther, on this book about four years ago, and now it's completed. We're going to do our book launch today, this evening at the People's Forum. People can live stream it. They can watch our participation. It'll be Claudia de la Cruz and Jody Dean, Eugene Perrier, and myself talking about our new book. And all of us and others who collectively wrote the book, now thousands of people have ordered the book. The premise of the book, the thinking behind the book, was that when people start to organize against the capitalist system or the different manifestations of capitalism that are basically making their lives more miserable, like the inability to have affordable health care, affordable housing, a decent wage, affordable education, especially at the higher education level, when people are looking for an alternative, the alternative to capitalism is indeed socialism. But in the United States, because of the Cold War and the witch hunt after World War II, socialism, which had been a very vibrant movement, a very robust movement with millions of people participating, it was basically canceled. It was basically extinguished. It was ended. If you were a socialist, you were part of a a fifth column working for the Soviet Union. And if you signed a petition and other people who signed the petition for peace or against racism or for civil rights, if some other person signed it and they were a socialist, then your whole career could be put into jeopardy. Thousands of people were forced into exile. The leaders of socialist parties and communist groups were put into prison, not because of anything they did, but because they were socialists. And we now feel that In order to have an alternative to capitalism, we have to win the people of the United States over to what socialism would really look like, not in a poor country, not say in Vietnam or in Cuba or earlier the People's Republic of China, but in an advanced capitalist society where the means of production, the technology, the science, the infrastructure are very highly developed and where, in fact, the crises in society 
are not caused by scarcity. They're caused by they're caused by surplus. In other words, the capitalist surplus, when it's unable to be distributed for a profit for the capitalists, leads to huge economic crises and contraction, like the 2008 meltdown on Wall Street, where too many homes were built that could be sold at a profit, and that crashed the housing market, and 9 million people were, were put into foreclosure. Why? Because too many homes were built, not because the, we didn't need these homes, but they couldn't be sold at a profit. Too many were sold, were produced than could be sold at a profit. That's the, the absurd logic of capitalist recessions and depressions. And so we felt like if we want to win the people in the United States over to our belief that socialism is the real alternative to capitalism, we have to tell them what it might look like here in the United States. Because frankly, with all of the anti-socialist, anti-communist propaganda that's been dished out over the last 70 years during the witch hunt and afterwards, people only associate socialism with what they consider to be totalitarian governments or governments that don't have democracy or poorer countries. And in fact, what we're showing in our book that socialism in the United States would immediately make everyone's life better that people would work less, that there would be more time for recreation, more time for culture, more time with our families. And most importantly, I think of all, in addition to creating equality and giving every individual uh, equality and an equal chance in society, it would deal with the existential problem of climate catastrophe caused by unfettered production using fossil fuels by capitalist corporations who don't care, even if they personally care about the environment, they can't care so much as that they're going to hurt their profit margins, even in the next quarter. I'm not talking the next year. The CEO of all of these capitalist corporations, their job is to maximize profit. So if that's your goal, that's your priority, and not to create a sustainable environment or an economy that helps contribute to a sustainability, then you're going to make the decisions to keep your job, which is to maximize profit. But that's why we're reaching this tipping point with environmental catastrophe. And we have to take the factories and the land and the energy companies away from the capitalists, make them publicly owned enterprises and subject them to democratic control by the people, by the working class, by society with the most important need to be to mitigate against environmental degradation and destruction. So for these variety of reasons, we decided to write a book. And the book is really quite amazing. We, we drew on a lot of experts. And of course, it was a byproduct of a collective discussion. But chapter one is what is socialism in the United States? Chapter two, what would a socialist government look like? Number three, what is an energy future for people and the planet? How to get rid of debt, reconstructing agriculture, how we would reorganize infrastructure, healthcare, policing, what would policing and the whole issue of criminal justice, the system that's so awful in the United States, what would a socialist government do about issues like that? So we cover a wide range of issues. It's very practical. And of course, Esther, it's not the final word. We're laying out ideas, proposals. What would work look like? 
How would agriculture be organized? How would we use alternative energy sources? People may agree with most of our ideas, but not like some of them. That's fine. What we're doing is engaging in a dialogue with the larger population with the idea that by having a dialogue about what socialism would look like in an advanced capitalist country, a so-called rich country, how that would make the lives of people better and how it would help sustain our environment, which is at a critical crossroads. We think by having discussions like this, we can really make the argument that socialism is better and we can break it down so people can actually talk about what socialism would look like rather than having these stereotypical demonized perceptions of what socialism is. Thank you for that. I like another part of the book that says, um, that points out many contemporary post-apocalyptic films and novels attest to the truth that it is now easier to envision the end of the world than it is to envision a new system. And I think I was just having a conversation with someone about the fact that regardless of the difficulties people have here in this country, regardless of the the meltdown we see in just vital infrastructure and systems that support like human needs in this country, because of the propaganda that you mentioned, people still think that, well, it might be bad, but at least it's not those those socialist countries that we, you know, people hear that, you know, people are hungry, people are poor, people don't have this and they don't have that, or it's the best that we can have. Like people are almost programmed to think that no matter how bad things are here, it's still the best. It's like the pinnacle of what humans have achieved. Yeah, indeed. I mean, people don't realize that the U.S. capitalism or maybe they do realize it, but we need to keep reminding people, U.S. capitalism got rich and became, a, and the United States became a rich country, not because capitalism is so wonderful, not because the capitalists are so smart, not because they're so innovative. It was a system based on the labor, the unpaid labor of millions of enslaved people. It's a system that grew rich by committing genocide against the indigenous inhabitants of North America and Central and South America, too, and the theft of their wonderful natural resources. In other words, this system is premised, and it's not just the U.S., you look at Europe, the colonization of China and India and Africa and Latin America. It's really a few countries got very, very rich based on the plunder of the rest of the world and the enslavement of millions of people. So what we're saying is let's take the wealth that does exist in this society as a consequence of these different processes and use it rationally. Why should it not be a guarantee that every person have a right to a home and no one can ever kick you out of your home? Mm -hmm. That instead of having a system where the homeless get to vote every two or four years for some rich, corrupt capitalist politician, that the homeless should actually have the right to a home, not just the right to vote. The same with people with, with health care. Why is health care a commodity? Under capitalism, American capitalism, it's something to be bought and sold. It should be a human right. Uh, this is a socialist demand. We should have the right to a guaranteed decent paying job, or if we can't work, a guaranteed income. These basic social rights that make life better, and, and not just the right 
to sort of be able to survive economically, which of course comes first and foremost, uh, but the right to have the kind of security that you know that you'll never be put into poverty, that nothing that you, it won't be because you had a medical emergency in the U.S., one out of every two personal bankruptcies is because people can't pay their hospital or doctor bills. We have to have a society where the, the people come first. And of course, when I say the people, I also mean sustainability of the environment. Our book has received a lot of praise. Dr. Cornell West wrote about our book. This courageous and visionary book provides a realistic and realizable socialist alternative to our decaying, predatory, capitalist civilization. It grounds a grand socialist reconstruction of the present U.S. regime in our present sufferings and struggles, especially in the crucial role of the awakening of working peoples. Genuine hope trumps despair in this prophetic text. I'm glad you read that. I was going to actually read that. And I wanted to add to the the list of things that you mentioned, just the right to clean water and clean air and how uh, when we we cover these recent crises like Jackson, Mississippi, which I know our listeners really care a lot about, and Flint, Michigan, which still doesn't have clean water, that people consider that at the top of the list, you know, because it's really about your survival, like you need water. Like you can go without a lot of things, but you can't really go without water. And the fact that with all the money this country has, with all the the money spent, this is connected to my last point, but it's very stark for people right now when they see the billions and billions of dollars going to Ukraine for weapons that are really only enriching the military industrial complex here. And people in Jackson have been suffering for decades with with water problems, you know, not just not having clean water, but having problems with distribution. They can't get water. The water that does come out of the tap really is not fit to drink or really bathe your child in. So these are the things that are really becoming really stark for people. You know, even though the war in Ukraine, the the Biden administration, the whole structure here is really pushing that, that it's it's mandatory. We have to do this. It's what it's really doing is showing people the insanity of the system right now, because we see billions and billions of dollars going overseas, but we can't provide clean water for people. You know, Esther, the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, which the Supreme Court, by the way, by a six to three majority just ruled that at the Environmental Protection Agency does not have the authority to limit emissions. In right. other words, to limit the destruction of the air. Well, here's what the EPA says about water. Every year from 1982 to 2015, between 9 million and 45 million Americans got their drinking water from a source that violated the standards of the Environmental Protection Agency. And we live in the, quote, richest country in the world, the 1%. We have more billionaires. The military-industrial complex sucks up a trillion dollars. That's the real number. It's about a trillion dollars every year for death and destruction. And this government, this capitalist government, can't provide clean drinking water to 45 million Americans. That From Jackson, Mississippi to Flint, Michigan, 
that our young people, our children are being forced to drink poisoned water or have lack access to water. I mean, this shows the priorities of this system are a mess. It means that capitalism puts a primacy on, on profit and socialism puts a primacy on people. So if you care about people, if you care about a humanist society, if you care about making people come first, not corporate capitalist profit, then you should be for socialism. This book will help you explain, well, first to understand and then explain to your friends and family what socialism would actually look like, because this book is very practical, very concrete, and we really hope people buy it, share it with their friends and family, and also study it together. Brian, I just want to ask you one last question. I know you have to go, but I mentioned the war in Ukraine. And this week, there was a a big escalation in the war. We saw Ukraine uh, destroyed a part of the the bridge that connects uh, Russia to Crimea. And then in response to that and other uh, terrorist attacks, Russia uh, rained down missiles all over. And so the war has definitely entered a new stage of escalation. And I thought about obviously that, you know, to ask or to say that this is an example of what would not happen in a socialist society and to ask you why. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you pose it that way, Esther, because we have a, a chapter. It's our last chapter. What would a what would a socialist United States government foreign policy be like? We would get rid of the military industrial complex. We don't need to be at war and going to war or threatening war with uh, China or with Russia or with Iran or threatening the people of Cuba. Uh, we don't need to have drone bases all over Africa. Every part of the of, of the African continent can be reached by a U.S. military drone, very lethal weapon within two hours. The people of the world don't need it. We don't need it. People don't want war. They want peace. And yet U.S. capitalism is addicted to war. It incentivizes war, including the war in Ukraine, because frankly, war is good business for the capitalists. I mean, it's really pretty much that simple. Right now, when, when you see Biden says, we're going to send another $5 billion of weapons to Ukraine, what they're basically doing is writing a check to American arms manufacturers. That money is not going to Ukrainian people. It's going right back to U.S. arms manufacturers so they can send more missiles and they get guaranteed profits and very good for capitalist investors. So they're making money hand over foot. It's kind of like a big subsidy, a big sort of welfare government subsidized plan for capitalism is the warfare state. If you told the American people, look, we're taking a trillion dollars every year of your money. And yeah, you can't have health care. That's too costly. You can't have affordable housing. And and young people have to suck up $1.6 trillion in debt just to go to college. We don't have money for all of that. But we're going to take your trillion dollars of your tax dollars every year so that we can go and conquer other people, take their land, their labor, their resources, so that we can exploit that too and make extra profits. People will say, no, you're not. You're not taking our tax money for that. So they dress it up. They say it's for national security. It's to stop Russia, stop China, bring democracy to Cuba. In the case of Libya, it was to save civilians from Gaddafi. Always some noble cause, but the military-industrial complex, Esther, is a form of looting, 
looting on a grand scale of society and of the national treasury by the U.S. capitalist class dressed up as arms manufacturers. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. The book is Socialist Reconstruction, A Better Future for the United States. And I've been speaking to Brian Becker, one of the contributors to the book. He's also a contributor to this show and a friend of the show, national coordinator for the Answer Coalition, and also host of the Socialist Program podcast. Thank you, Brian, for joining me today. Thank you. And that's it for today's show. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on two dozen stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and on all your podcast platforms at On the Ground with Esther Averam. Our website and archive of all of our shows is onthegroundshow.org. In addition, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and I also link to every show on my Instagram page at Esther underscore Averam. That's I-V like Victor, E-R-E-M. Also, a special thank you to our supporters on Patreon.com at On The Ground Show. Our theme music for the show is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash on the ground show. Or you can see all the ways to support, including end-of-the-year giving and PayPal on our website, which you know is onthegroundshow.org.